Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man who didn't have to sit at the kitty table this Thanksgiving because he had two relatives in prison. It's Dale. <laughs> What's up, man? What's going on, dude? I guess that means I got moved up by default. I guess. <laughs> I really think it's because I kept uh, breaking those plastic chairs and my knees kept busting the table over. They kind of just got rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> that's short right. Man. Big man on the short table, I guess. That's it. Well, you got moved up anyway. That's yeah, the main thing. That's right. What's going on, dude? Oh, same old, same old. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I did. had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you did. It was all right. Yeah. yeah. Can't complain. Yeah, we're in the crack house recording. Yeah. Man, that's Best, trying, place, best place to be, eh? Trying to get you guys another episode. Squeezing them out. You got any good shout-outs, dude? Man, we got a couple. I do got a couple. First of all, I'd like to shout-out to uh, some guys I met the other week at the Beardo Brothers Barbecue Truck. And their slogan is... Uh, you can nacho. say that three times real fast. No, I can. That's all I said it once. <laughs> I said uh, Nacho Average Barbecue, or Nacho Average Q is their slogan. But, man, they got these damn barbecue nachos is off the hook. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just told him I'd give him a shout-out because it's so damn good. So if you're around uh, around town here or anywhere local, hit them up with the, the cedar truck. Okay, cool. Good shit. That's uh, Beardo Brothers. Kind of weird name, but damn good food. Beardo Brothers. Beardo Brothers, yeah. Anyway, oh, often two other stuff. We have a couple of uh, five-star. Five-star. Yeah, you're getting it out five star yeah, review you haven't, brought, you haven't brought back the little gimmick with the little clapper thing yeah i forgot it again okay i was gonna bring it too okay anyway this is from four eight eight five seven nine two one six seven oh seven five two and if that's you we appreciate it <laughs> it says uh southern guys rock love listening to you guys this southern girl loves your accents and thanks for all the great stories man well, that's pretty cool apple podcast review yeah five star too brother and we also have another five star five star Thank you. Review. And this is from Jack is OG. It says, addicting. I listen to a ton of true crime podcasts. This is definitely the top five for me. Man, that's what I say all the time. Yeah, top five. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the stories are well put together and sprinkled with a good bit of humor, especially in the intros where Donnie hammers on Dale. Are you hammering on me? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it hammering, but <laughs> whatever. it's just something I make up about you and it's funny go with it. Yeah. Especially the intros, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm fairly local to Crack House down here in Indian Trail, so shout out to Indian Trail. And uh, so here in North Carolina-based cases is always interesting. My only complaint, they don't do multiple episodes per week. Oh, man. Keep up the great work, guys. Man, we appreciate you, and we would if we could. We're struggling workers over here. We have to we get out while we can. Yeah, we have, to, <laughs> we have to do a real job for a living and do this part-time. Yeah, we do the fun stuff part-time. Yeah. I wish it was the other way around. Oh, I'd love to do this full-time, dude. Yeah, so if you're a millionaire and you want to sponsor us and pay us lots of money, we'd be glad to. We'll put one out a day. Yeah, if anybody wants to sponsor us. <laughs> get in line, get in line. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, mention them online and they can pay us. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's all we can do. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, that's all I got, man. Well, if anybody wants to be like 478652, all them numbers. There's a whole bunch of them. And go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star and rate and review. Do Thank it. You. And and then uh, by the other one, who, who was the other one? Jack is OG. Yeah, if you want to be like Jack is OG, whatever OG is. He's a regional gangster, man. Okay. If you yeah. say so, Jack is OG. Yeah. Might be an old guy. Yeah. Might be uh OG. Yeah, just maybe just maybe it's just OG. Mm-hmm. Maybe it don't mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm, who knows? Anyway. Original guy. Yeah. Original guy. Maybe yeah. the only guy. Yeah. Hmm. Or our guy. Or your yeah, guy. Yeah, our guy. Jack yeah. is our guy. Yeah. That's it right there. Jack is our guy. <laughs> you go, Jack. All right. <laughs> if you want to be like, Jack is OG, our guy. Yeah. Leave a five star and write something in the box. Five star, five star, five star. And we will give you a shout out. That's right. Yep. 
Other than that, dude, we're going to get going. Let's go roll, man. Yep. Let's get into this. But today, we uh, we got a pretty cool episode. It's, um, it's a missing person. And yes. felt like we needed to cover this case. This girl's been missing since 1992. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be covered. But we are talking about Misty Copsy today. Yeah, I had never heard of this until you brought it up to me. That's yeah. Pretty interesting. Very interesting case. Kind of a twisty, turny kind of thing going on. A lot of little stuff here and there. A lot of little rabbit holes, but we'll try to bring it out and tell the story as best we can. We'll kind of iron it out and put it a little straighter. Yeah. There you go. And give you guys something to think about. Yeah. But like I said, this is Misty Copsy, and she was born in 1978 to parents Diana Smith and Buck Copsy. Buck Copsy. But they would divorce just... A few months after Misty was born. Yeah, I think they were in the middle of a separation when all this was going down. So Yeah, but she would go on to spend most of her time with her mom, Diana, mm-hmm. and who would become her primary guardian. Exactly. Yeah, but now Misty was reported to be an excellent student. She spent a lot of free time involved in student athletes. She played softball, basketball, volleyball, all while keeping a B average in school. Pretty good, man. That's really good to be involved in all that stuff. Everything, it? yeah. Yeah. And she was also pretty popular and was largely part to her charismatic personality. And it was described she had a goofy sense of humor. She had a close friend of hers, which actually was her best friend. Her name was Trina Bavard. Oh, Trina. Yeah. And they had nicknames for each other. She referred to Trina as Bean. And Misty's nickname was Bunyan. Bean and Bunyan. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> nobody knew how they came up with these nicknames, but you know, it was only they... Knew how they came up with them, but okay. it was pretty cool, I guess. To have oh, yeah. Names. yeah, but Misty was the kind of kid that everyone adored and liked. And kids at her junior high school wanted to be close to her just because of her popularity and her friendliness. Yeah, she was very outgoing. But Misty grew up with her mother there in Puyallup, Washington. I'm glad you said that. Yep, they lived in a mobile home park called Green Meadows, and this were Misty was close to most of her friends, and she would even keep in touch with them even after they moved away. Yeah, her mom was working hard, and she really wanted to give her something a little bit better than being in the trailer park. Yep. But they moved into a duplex in Spanaway in 1992. Now, Spanaway is just a stone's throw away from the suburb they lived in right on South Hill, but it was still a new environment and caused Misty to enter a new neighborhood where she didn't know anyone. There. Yeah, that's kind of hard on you. Know? It is. Especially, you know, the thing is, her mom thinks she's doing the right thing about taking her out of a trailer park, but moving into a duplex where she don't know anybody still going to be hard on her. Yeah. Especially when her mom works, you know, when she works nights, usually gone because she works as a caregiver for for ladies in her late 90s. Mm-hmm. So she would be there a lot by herself, so I don't know, pretty hard on her. Yeah. And, you know, Misty, this is junior high, so it had to be, Double tough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and all your friends are gone, and, you know. Mm-hmm. You but know. Misty would stay in touch with a lot of her friends from Green Meadows and would still hang out with them, even when, when she had a chance to anyway. Right. One of her many friends she carried over from Green Meadows Trailer Park was an older boy named Reuben Schmidt. Right. And he was 18. He was described as a scrawny high school dropout. And he had a one-sided interest in Misty. I think the difference was is uh, he really liked Misty, and Misty really liked his car. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Because <laughs> it, it gave her transportation. Yeah, it was a 1974 Green Nova. Yeah, sweet. But Ruben had an attraction to Misty, a mm-hmm. girl who was four years younger than him. 
Yeah. yeah he wasn't it wasn't good at all. Yeah, he was thinking the wrong things. She was thinking you're my friend gives me a ride and he was not. Yeah. <laughs> And even Misty's mother, didn't, Diana, didn't like it at all either. Yeah, I think she had overheard a phone conversation, right? Yeah, and Diana heard in this conversation of uh, Reuben telling Misty about how horny he got just looking at her. Yeah. And yeah. Diana didn't want to hear this dude. No. You just you just need to hang that damn phone up right there. We're done. Yeah, that's what she told her. Hang the phone <laughs> up. Yeah, I can't say that. I wouldn't say a lot more than that. But Misty didn't feel the same way about Reuben. Right. And, you know, she was interested in boys and boys was interested in her but she was just starting to develop crushes man you know right. being junior high i guess it was just coming into her own and you know how you're going through those stages in life and she wasn't on the same level as reuben at all no she mm-hmm. was thinking guys were hot like jason Priestley at the time on uh 90210 yeah that was the big thing then yeah she wasn't much into reuben yeah except for he had a car yep things between misty and her mom diana wasn't what you'd expect from a teenage girl and her mom, they they had their issues, man. But it seemed like they were on good terms. I guess it was a typical mother daughter relationship. Yeah, you know. Well, and I'm sure her mom was gone all the time, so trying to support them, you know, by herself. Yeah, working all she could. But Diana did have a bit of an alcohol problem, but nothing that kept her from living her life or you know keeping her way herself away from Misty. Right, seemed like they're self medicating to me. Yeah. But now the two of them, they shared an incident sometime over the summer in which Diana couldn't find Misty. And she even filed a missing persons report. Yeah, she kind of freaked out, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And she would later find Misty in her bedroom having gotten home sometime before. Yeah, so this is all kind of weird to me because there's no word you can actually find out what the timeline was between the time she was disappeared, the timeline from there to the report to where she found her because it. Everywhere you read or everywhere you hear, it's like she done this, and then she made a report, and then she found her in the bedroom. It's not like she just drove home and there she was. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there had to be some kind of time went by, but it, I don't think it was a really big gap. But it's really hard to wrap your head around how long the, the report from the time of the report to the time she found her. And it'd been summed up as just a misunderstanding. Yeah. Well, yeah. right. Wasn't it? You know, like you said, a misunderstanding where she didn't know what time she was supposed to be home, and she didn't know what time she was, and her mom didn't know what time she was going to be home. So somewhere in there, in that little conflict they didn't they didn't line up which makes me wonder how long she was gone to, right to file a report right that's my whole point you know yeah i get you where i see did, did it explain that mm-hmm. but diana was it seemed that she was too embarrassed by this whole situation to tell the police that the missing report was unnecessary right so and, she, she never picked up the phone call saying look never mind that she's home i'm sorry blah blah blah. It mean waste your time thanks for taking up this kind of stuff nothing so she, this she report ride, yeah this report remained on file right it has, you have to question yourself whether this is the, her, her alcoholism or her drinking played a part in it. Yeah, maybe. I maybe she's, you know, I hate to say it, you know, maybe she was passed out or something and didn't know where she was going when she come back. Could be. Don't you know? know? Yeah. Kind of speculating a little bit, but who knows? There was a time gap somewhere, but, you know. Yeah, she kind of messed up when she didn't call and just cancel that that missing persons thing. Mm-hmm. That'll come back later. To- but it seemed like after this incident, things got a little bit better between Misty and her mom. Well, so communication, man. It's the main thing. Yeah. And her mom, Diana, had just bought Misty a brand new stereo and a bunch of new clothes. And their relationship was pretty happy in her home environment, too. Right. Now, school has started that fall there at Spanaway Lake Junior High. And that fall, the fair was coming to town. Big time. This was a big fair in the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. And Misty and her best friend, they started making plans to go to this fair together and make it make it happen to be able to go. Right. 
Yeah, you know, uh, I'm a big deal with the fair comes around here. It's a big, we have a pretty big fair here here in our county. It's probably the biggest one in the state, but yeah. it's no nowhere near the size of like a state fair, which is what this was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we didn't realize that when we first started doing uh, research on this, and it said that Huey Lewis was playing at that fair. So I got to looking up, and this was exactly the, the state fair out in Washington. It's a huge fair. Yeah. So on September the 17th, Misty had finally convinced her mom, Diana, to let her go to the fair without any kind of adult supervision. Right. And she was going with her best friend, Trina. But they were going to have to find a ride back home. Your mom said that she didn't really want them to do it. And first she told them no. And then we're like, well, mom, we're 14 now. We can do this. We've already looked up the bus schedules. We know exactly what we need to do. And we know exactly how we can get home. Mm -hmm. And so she finally talked her into it. Because her mom was going to drop them off when she was going to work and said, you know, said the last thing she told her was, uh, you know, that she loved her and I love you too. And then said, well, just don't screw us up because if you do, I'm not, never going to let you do anything else. Mm-hmm. She said, okay, I won't. And then left. Yep. Now, Missy had borrowed a pair of her mom's jeans. It was a new pair that were pretty fashionable at the time, baggy, stonewashed, faded, mm-hmm. and which was really described as too big for Misty. Yeah. And she had to roll up the legs to get them to fit. Yeah, I think uh, she had to roll them up, plus it was a little bit baggy around the waist and stuff, too, her mom said. But now, just keep in mind, this town of Puyallup is a pretty small town in nature, but the fair is a big, huge draw for the whole surrounding area. Yeah, tons. Nearly quadrupling the local foot and road trafficking, man. Mm-hmm. So, pretty big deal. Yeah, a lot of people coming into town for that. Now, both the girls planned on taking the bus back home, which would take Misty from downtown Puyallup to Spanaway. And that meant they had to, they had the entire afternoon and evening to have fun at the fair and just enjoy themselves, man. When 8.40 p.m. rolled around, get this, they both missed the bus. They missed the damn bus. And it was the last trip the Puyallup to Spanaway bus would be making, so Misty needed to find another ride back home. Yeah, not good. Nope. Now, Trina, her best friend, lived in Sumner, and it's a small town in the opposite direction. So when things began to get stressful, she told her that she was just going to walk home. Mm. See, and, and I'd like to know exactly how far she lives, too, because, you know, they also said that where she moved was only a stone's throw from where she used to live. Now, the Puyallup Fairground, which exists in the downtown valley of the town, lies just next to Sumner. But Spanaway... Yeah, I think it's eight miles. Eight miles. Yeah. Lord have mercy. Ain't no way I'm walking eight miles. Mm-mm. Now, at 8.45 p.m., Misty made a call to her mom telling her that she had missed the bus. Right. Now, Diana was pretty pissed off. Yeah. And she wasn't able to leave her job. Uh, she was taking care of this 97-year-old woman. So, I got a question. Do we know how far away this work job was from where this fairground is? I don't, I've never been told. never read. Okay. Yeah. Because in my mind, I mean, you know, it helped me take care of my dad and stuff the last couple of years. I know how it is taking care of uh, an older folks, you know, and stuff. And that late, mm, I mean, and depending on the situation, or plus, I don't know how far away it is, but I'm thinking, why would she just run over and pick her up and take her back to work? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's if a the, hindsight, I guess. If the 97-year-old woman was in bed and asleep, just lock the door, go get your kid and take her back with you to work. Right. Now, there might be a big reason. It might have been an hour away. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how far away it was, but yeah. that's just me speculating. So. And she made an agreement with the people she was working for, taking care of it, that she would be there right, nonstop. So, yeah, you're right. So, it is what it is. Yeah. You, I, and, well, I get it if she couldn't. So That plus, you know, she she had gave her uh, an electronic, what was it? Uh, a roll, uh, like an electronic uh, index. Yeah. 
Anyway, yeah. her mama got her that and had everybody's phone number in it, so she was carrying that. So it's kind of like a Rolodex in your pocket. Mm-hmm. That's for you kids who have any idea what a Rolodex is. <laughs> thing we used to keep phone numbers back in, in the day. It was an electronic thing to keep phone numbers in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So she had told her to call her grandma or a few other people to see if she could get a ride. And then she also told her to uh, make sure you call me back and let me know what's going on. Yep. And I think her first thing she wanted to do was call Reuben, right? Yeah, she wanted to call Reuben. And her mama said, don't call Reuben. Yeah. She didn't want him around, especially knowing that she, she didn't like him. be there. And it was obvious she didn't like him, too. Right. So, anyway, that's when she said, call your grandmother or or somebody else to see if they can come pick you up. Mm -hmm. But that call never came. The call never came. And Diana never spoke to Misty again. Nope. Now, Diana got concerned that she didn't get a follow-up phone call and spent the rest of her work night in worry. Mm -hmm. And, unfortunately, there was little that she could do. Misty had called from a payphone. Yep. And until she heard from her, she could only assume that Misty had found a ride home. Right. And if the ride had come from Reuben, then she would just have to deal with it later. Right. Yeah. And Diane would get home a few hours later expecting to find Misty watching TV or asleep in her bed. Yeah. Yep. And like, you know, being in there going, oh, no, I'm getting in trouble because I missed the bus. But since she walked in and nothing. Yep. Just an empty house. Empty house. Now, Diana began to make phone calls, calling everyone that she knew. And she called Trina, Reuben. Her own mother, Misty, which was Misty's grandma, other friends, and eventually 911. And Trina's family didn't answer. Reuben told Diana that Misty had called asking him for a ride, but he didn't have the gas to go get her and pick her up. Yeah, that's what he told her. Yeah, which was only a few miles away, but I yeah, mean. You ain't got no gas, you ain't got no gas. Yeah, and that morning, next morning, Diane began to panic. She called 911 and was informed that she had to wait 30 days to file the report. Which is bullshit. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, Ruben also said that even uh, Misty had told him how to get in her house to get money, but he still didn't want to do it. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, what's he thinking? Don't go here and break into somebody's house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that either. But, you know, I mean, she was desperate, you know, enough to do that. Yeah. Crazy. Now, Diana spent the better part of the next day in panic. She was looking for Misty who had disappeared and didn't show up at school the next morning. And she drove to Trina's house, leaving a note on the front door right. for Trina to to give her a call, I guess, when she got home from school. Yeah. And Diana would eventually file a report with the Pierce County Sheriff's Department at about 1.30 p.m. that afternoon and would find out that the 911 dispatcher had been way off base on the 30 days remark. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if they got in trouble for that. I hope so. Yep. Misty had disappeared in Puyallup, which meant that the Pierce County couldn't intervene without the Puyallup's police department's go-ahead. Diana would cover a tremendous amount of ground that day, trying to, I guess, retrace Misty's footsteps while they were trying to contact every family member of Misty's friends and everybody. Man, I'd be all to hell. I would, too. And panic was setting in, dude. Trina finally returned her call after she got home from school, seeing the note on the door. Right. And Trina told Diane what happened the night before. And she told her that the two had separated while Misty was on her way to her bus stop. And she began walking home to Sumner. And apparently Trina hadn't heard from her since. No, hadn't heard or seen her, nothing. Diana got a hunch, and she called Reuben again, and he was gone. But uh, his teenage roommate, his name was James Tinley, answered the phone. And he told Diana that Reuben had, in fact, gone with his uncle to pick up Misty that night. Hmm. Yeah. Now, this was a 
pretty big turn of events, and it gave Diana more than enough reason to begin suspecting Reuben. Exactly. Yeah. And Diana called again later that afternoon, and Reuben was home. And she said, where's my kid? And she she was pretty firm with it. Pissed. Yeah. Now, Reuben would explain that his roommate James had it all wrong. He hadn't gone to pick up Misty, but actually had gone with his uncle to a party and then woke up hours later. So he didn't have gas to go get Misty, but he had gas to go get go to the party. Well, maybe uncle picked him up. Yeah, could have. But. Since he went with his uncle, right? Yeah. Hmm? Unless we, unless uncle don't drive. Then, of course, I believe it's bullshit anyway, but that's what he said. Diana would spend the next several days praying for her daughter's safe return. And if the Puyallup police were correct and she was runaway, she'd hopefully be returning home or making contact pretty soon. Right. But Diana didn't believe that story for a moment, and she had to hold out hope. Yep, but, you know, she never got another phone call. Phone call never came. Now, Diana would make a series of flyers, and she started posting them all over town, especially the downtown area where Misty had disappeared. And she would make contact with Misty's friends, pleading them to contact her if Misty would pop up at any time. And she promised that no repercussions on them would happen, just to know that Misty was safe and sound and and was enough to forgive any small, you know, if anything happened. Oh, yeah. She just wanted to know where her daughter just was. bring her home. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, w- I wonder what day of the fair this was. You know, I mean, sure, it was like probably a weekday, a week fair. I wonder how many, you know, near the end of the fair, first of the fair. I don't know. Because I just looked up the numbers. In 1992, the fair attendance was 130,000 people that year. Yeah. And then, hell, last year, I remember 2021, it was almost 800,000. So it's a, it's a big deal. So I just kind of wondering if it was near the end. Like, when she was putting up flyers, how many more people saw it, you know? Yeah. It was, well, it had to be a school night because school was the next day. So right. either Sunday night or... Um, Right, or during the week. Monday through Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Could have been a Friday or Saturday. Right. Now, a few days later, Diana would track down the bus driver that had been servicing the route to Spanaway, and he told Diana that he remembered seeing Misty on the night that she disappeared, but he had been finishing up for the night and wasn't headed to Spanaway again, and he recalled telling Misty to catch the next bus to Tacoma, which was 10 or a little bit more miles away out of the way so i wonder how long before that bus would have come i don't know that would have been the best thing to do yeah sit your ass there and wait on the bus yeah of course we don't know that she didn't do that yeah we don't know nobody knows really right now some family members and friends would drop by our house or call asking if the police were any closer to tracking down misty and reuben schmidt was one of those few asking if the police had uncovered anything about the case and Diana remained a little bit suspicious of him. I would too, man. He's my main suspect. Yeah. Now, Misty, at this time, had been missing for the better part of a week, and Diana was able to file a missing persons report with the Puyallup Police Department, who held jurisdiction on this case. And this was on September the 23rd, six days after Misty went missing. And Diana recalls the mood of the police officers dealing with her that, her that day, and they were all assured that Misty was just a runaway and would either be returning home or making contact pretty soon. They came pretty close to guaranteeing it's what they told her. So it sounds like to me they just wouldn't want to do anything. No, you know, really, we praised the law enforcement every time they were really busting their ass on the case, but it sounds like when this one, they just didn't give a shit. Mm-mm. Her mama has done everything, if you think about it. When this right here would have been her best chance just to crawl into a bottle and start crying, 
Mm-hmm. She's out here running the roads. I mean, you track down the bus driver, she's been, she's doing everything she can do. Yeah. So you got to give a lot of props to her. Yeah. Now, at this time, Dale, the police, they got to investigating Diana a little bit. Hmm. And what they found was a woman with a couple of DUIs on her record and a prior conviction for welfare fraud. Right. And Diana was the first to admit that she wasn't an angel. And she had a battle with alcoholism for most of her life but had openly admitted to collecting food stamps while working. And she was a single mother in her twenties at the time. And she admitted her crimes to welfare office in exchange for deferred sentence. Right. But just, just trying to get by. Man. Yeah. But digging in Diana's skeletons, they also found the prior missing persons report from mm. a few months prior, which Diana had been too embarrassed to close. So that's where it's coming back to get her. Yeah. yeah. And they were seeing Diana as having less than a stellar reputation. And she was just someone with a, a history of dishonesty. So they're saying she's got a bad rep and she's a liar. That's yeah. basically what they're saying. Now, on September the 29th, the authorities met with Diana at Misty's Junior High School and would speak to a couple of eighth graders. And these kids had been circulating rumors for a few days in which they had spoken to or had seen Misty since her disappearance. And one claimed to have gotten a phone call from Misty, who was safe and sound in Olympia, Washington. And another claim to have seen Misty at the Color Me Bad concert on September the 21st, four days after her disappearance. Right. And that was also at the fairgrounds. Yeah. And it should be mentioned that neither of the kids were friends of Misty's. They were just some teenagers that knew Misty as a school acquaintance. Yeah, I think he's making it up. Yeah. Yeah. The authorities began to believe this was just a bunch of crap, Dale. Right. Now, to Diana, this was just a punch in the gut. And she knew that Misty wasn't a runaway. Right. She was a good kid who was happy with her home life. And it should be noted that when questioned years later, one of the girls... She made up a story. Yeah, about... Just want to be popular. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah about yeah. her calling her. And this is pretty much causing them to take her off the missing persons database and adding her to a runaway. Yeah. You know, again, there's more... Yeah. Just inserting herself into the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the next day, uh, Sergeant Herm Carver... He spoke to Seattle radio station, informing them that Misty Copsey, who was referred as a missing child by the local media, was actually a runaway. Yeah, he just said it straight out. Yeah. He also claimed that her mother, Diana, knew exactly where she was and that she was safe and sound. What in the hell? Yeah. yeah. And with this interview, it all came undone and the investigation froze and all the flyers were taken down and everyone stopped looking for her. Well, almost. Yeah. Now, in comes a guy named Corey Boberdale, yeah. B-O-B-E-R, and he got involved in this, and he immediately contacted Diana and began to fill her in on his life's work. He had been researching the Green River Killer. Yeah, well, I think more obsessed would be. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a little more than the, what's good for him, actually. You know? But he had been researching Misty's case. And this was what Diana had been waiting for. She had been waiting for this somebody to get involved. Yeah. And who was she was interested in somebody who was trying to find out what had happened to Misty. Right. And not just a An official capacity. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But in spilling out his theories, Bober had revealed the dark side of all this he had given to Diana. He told her that in all likelihood that Misty had been abducted and murdered by this suspect of his that right. he'd been working on. And she was just another victim, and the odds of seeing her alive again were very low. Yeah, zero pretty much. Way yeah. And to Diana, this was more than a punch in the gut. It was the death of any hope she had mm-hmm. of finding Misty at all. 
Well, you know, this is just kind of crazy because, you know, like really, really high feeling and all the way down low when she got, you know, high from when this guy comes into the picture going, yeah, I'm definitely going to help you look out for this. I got stuff. I think it's this. I think of that. But mm-hmm. if it is what I'm thinking, it also means this. So that'd be terrible. Yep. Diana and Corey, they became allies in this to find out what had happened to Misty and would begin speaking for almost hours every day. And, well, I guess Corey Bober did most of the talking, which was a good way for Diana to begin combating all of her grief. And Diana began to slip into the bottle again, a little bit heavier. But Bober was getting more and more involved in all this. And he had a, a guy that he was looking at as the Green River Killer at the time. His name was Randy Oxiger. I guess that's how you pronounce his no name. A C H Z I G E R. Yeah. Oxiger? yeah. Something like that. Now, on October the 5th, Bober made contact with this Sergeant Herm Carver of the Puyallup Police Department, who distinctly recalled the man's personal vendetta. Yeah, against uh, this uh, against Randy. Randy. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, uh, he had it in his head that he was definitely the Green River Killer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in several of their conversations, particularly one of them, they revealed to Bober that if they were to find Misty's whereabouts, the last people they would tell would be Bober or Diana. They believed Diana to be a troubled drunk with a history of breaking the law, and Bober was simply a psychotic thorn in their side, man. Right. They had, they they knew this guy well. He he was really probably the reason they got so pissed off about it, because this dude was just constantly on them about stuff. Now, during all this, the Puyallup PD had finally had enough of him, and they would arrange a drug bust on Bober. Who was, right. Well, I mean, he continued to dig and dig. And, you know, he always threatened them to get the media involved if they didn't do their job. They didn't take him seriously, and he was just getting just giving them shit. So they finally was like, well, okay, well, then we're going to show you. So that's when they arranged his drug bust, which they knew he was a small-time weed dealer. But yep. They went ahead and got him anyway. Yeah, just to shut him up, get him somewhere where they can right. shut him down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't go in there threatening law enforcement, and then not when you're doing that kind of mess. Bober, he still persisted, man. Oh, yeah. He ain't stopping. Mm-mm. With Bober's arrest slowing down the progress in October, the police trying to convince Diana to drop Corey from her side. Both Sergeant Herm Carver and Deputy Brian Coburn insisted on it. And to them, Bober was just bad news. And would only hurt her pursuit of finding Misty. And I can see the point there. Yeah. And only but one. But hell, she's got, that's the only thing that's keeping her going. I yeah. Mean, everybody else has basically told her to go home. You're drunk. Yeah. Well, they told her that she was a runaway, man. Yeah. Yeah. And they even eventually did, convinced her to file a restraining order against Corey. But they did reactivate Misty's name on the missing persons report. I wonder if that was a trade out. It could have been. You do this, we'll do this. Yeah. Yeah. But Diana would eventually drop the restraining order two weeks later on Corey Bober in November, and she realized that she needed Corey Bober. Right. But now get this. Corey Bober felt a little bit of vindication in November of 1992 when the King County officials, they revealed that they were officially reopening the Green River Killer case and were now tying the two murdered Puyallup girls, Kim DeLonge and Anna Chibetanoi, the case. Now, Misty Copsey couldn't be added since she had she had just been missing. Yeah. yeah. She couldn't have been added to this at all. Right. But these other girls were, were from around there and relatively close. So they added them to they thought that uh, they were definitely victims from the Green River Killer. Yeah, and they were barking up the right tree for that on that. Right. 
he continued to investigate until he managed to corner an investigator at the medical examiner's office. And he was able to coax him out of the location that the two Puyallup victims had been found. Right. And it was a little off Highway 410 near Mile Marker 30. Right. And he would organize weekend search parties through most of November, taking groups of roughly 20 people out in the woods where the prior two girls had been found to try to find any trace of Misty. So basically he got some information from the ME to find out where the bodies were found so he can go out there and see if she was at the so-called dumping ground. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on December the 2nd, nearly three months after Misty disappeared, the Pierce County Sheriff, they officially declared Misty as missing under suspicious circumstances. Well, getting a little better. Which was a big upgrade. Yeah, definitely. Now, a week later, Corey Berber handed off a written theory to the Puyallup investigators and informed them that a news story would be running the next day. And the search parties into finding her just off Highway 410. And it also tried to connect Misty's disappearance to the previous two Puyallup murders. And Corey Bober believed that it might instigate the killer to lash out again or to leave uh, some kind of clue. So basically they're trying to put a baiting, baiting, yeah, pretty much a baiting, baiting story into this paper. Yeah. Yeah. Either saying she's a victim too or she ain't seen if it would piss him off or not. Yeah, but nothing happened. Right, nothing. Or the next day. And Misty had been missing nearly three months at this time. After... A run-in with Reuben Schmidt at the grocery store. He ran away from her. Yeah, he wouldn't even talk to her. Yeah, he, he didn't even face her at the grocery store at so all. now what do you think? Yeah. I'm still thinking it's him. Yeah, I think he's involved in it somehow or another. Now, Bober's theory had failed. No, yeah, no more killings, no nothing's going on, and uh, nobody would give a shit about what was in the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> now, and later in December, as I guess the Christmas holidays were coming about, Diana tried to kill herself by mm. mixing alcohol with pharmaceutical antidepressants and they failed and she woke up in the hospital but had to return to her yeah. empty house just days later yeah that's sad man now in january of 1993 northwest afternoon this is a tv new show, show, new show yeah. yeah aired on the local abc affiliate komo in which diana appeared with misty's teenage friend trina bavard and also with them was the King County Detective Jim Doyon, who had investigated the Green River Killer along with the two murdered Puyallup girls that right. we talked about. Yeah. And throughout the airing, the station opened up the phone lines to potential tips and clues, and one was received, and a woman claimed that she had witnessed Misty walking down Meridian. This is the main Puyallup drag that cruises past the fairgrounds, and this alleged sighting had taken place place closer to 10 o'clock than nine o'clock hmm. which which put, makes sense yeah which uh would push back the time out of missy's disappearance and by an half, entire half hour yeah i don't know about that because you said she called her mama at nine forty-five, right yeah to come pick me up well if she's walking and you see her close to 10 that that's about right on time to me it seemed like it wasn't it yeah now this woman would never be questioned or interviewed by the puyallup or pierce county detectives and whoever she was remained Lost in time, dude. Right. Yeah, I was watching something on this today, actually, and uh, they were showing the, uh, the actual the TV footage, but then they said that the part where she calls in, the tapes had been lost or gone. What the heck? And they could never, they couldn't ever find out who it was, and they couldn't ever contact them, and they never heard from her again. That is so crazy. Yeah. Now, the next day, Jim Doyen would go to Highway 410 dumping ground near Mile Marker 30 and began snooping around, and he found nothing. 
but it was a good sign that an established detective was interested in the case. Finally. Yeah, even though he had no jurisdiction and worked for the neighboring county. Now, January the 10th of 1993, this was four months after Misty had disappeared. Five blocks away from where Misty had disappeared at approximately 2 o'clock in the morning, a 15-year-old was walking along Meridian in downtown Puyallup. A, there was a red Camaro pulls up, and a man inside the car began calling out to her. Yeah. And he began making lewd jokes, asking for sexual favors, but she was just trying to ignore him. Yeah, she tried to ignore him, and then she walked off, and he drove down a little bit more, and then asked her if she had a cigarette, and she said no, and tried to run across the street to get away from him. Yeah. But uh, he jumped out and grabbed her and threw her in the car. And he took her to a secluded area nearby and raped her. After he got done with her, he took her to her place and threw her down a ravine, hoping it would kill her, but fortunately, she survived. Yeah. And this Robert Hickey was later convicted of first-degree rape. However, his first sentence would only be for seven years, and he would be eligible for parole. How the hell is that? Yeah, I don't know. And detectives would take note of his crimes in, a, in the proximity of Misty's disappearance. Yeah. But would never list him as a suspect or question him. Well, I don't know why. Yeah, I know. I mean, I he mean need... it's right there in the area. I mean, the girl's about the same age. He should have been questioning her disappearance, dude. Yeah. With his fancy red Camaro. Yeah. And Corey Bober, he began to wonder what he was doing wrong. He had believed in his heart that a sign of Misty's was going to be found any day. And he just kept digging and searching the area where the two Puyallup girls had been found before. Or where he thought they were. Yeah. This is where the, the M.E. had given the tip of where yeah. they were. And he managed to track down his supposed suspect's whereabouts on the night in question. And on, on September the 17th, the yeah. night Misty disappeared. And this Randy Oxiger had just been a stone's throw away from the fairgrounds at the Puyallup Good Samaritan Hospital as his sister was uh, giving birth to a baby. Yeah, so this dude's all, he's all in his head. Yeah. <laughs> now, Bober questioned the Emmy's office again, asking if they had the location correct. And it turns out that Bober's hunch was correct. He, he was, was wrong. Doing, yeah. He, he was on the wrong side of the damn highway. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, so Bober, he basically put out a thing to the media saying they're having this big ass search you know now that you're going to be on the right looking in the right place on the other side of the road yeah and getting more help and getting a lot of people out there yep yeah but this time dale they found something hmm, surprise yep the pair of jeans that misty had been wearing the night of her disappearance the faded baggy pair of jeans she borrowed from her mother were found in those dark woods on february the 7th man yeah i saw a thing that said that uh, it was actually was a boy scout with a stick prodding in them and they were kind of in the, in the mud Huh. Down in the dirt a little bit when they found it. It wasn't just like they were just laying there. Yeah. But you said it's been months, so that makes kind of sense, you know. But this was very troubling to Diana. Oh, I'm sure. But Bober, he had trouble containing his excitement. Well, they, then that right there is the the big difference in this hunt. She's looking for her daughter and he's looking for glory. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? Because he just, he just been so obsessed with this story that that's, you know, and finally he's got something that proved him right. So, or he thinks proved him right, so he's just elated while she's just dying inside of her, knowing that, you know, well, this right here proves that something bad really happened. She just didn't run away. Yeah. Yeah. Now, found with the jeans were a pair of socks and underwear mm-hmm. that may or may not have been the article she was wearing the night she disappeared. Yeah, they say that because I don't think they found any DNA that would match yep. her or Misty. But Diana had confirmed that they were Misty's. Well, she knew they were her pants. Yeah. You know, to begin with. Now, Detective Jim Doyen was sent out to Highway 410 scene and put in charge of the investigation. Which is good. It makes yeah. sense because he did. He gave a shit. And this was King County Territory. 
And but now he had his right to do it. Yeah. Yep. So he could invade the territory, basically. <laughs> but Doyen was surprised to meet Bober, who was not at all what he'd been expecting. He was in his late 20s, was rather short, scrawny, with a huge head of hair and, and just a... He's giddy. Just a kid, man, really. Yeah, he's just giddy over finding this dead girl's pants. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm sure the detective was like, damn, dude, you need to calm down. This this lady just found out her kid's probably dead and you're ever having a party. Yeah. But something Doyen noted that pants weren't located near the killer's usual dumping ground. Right. The prior two victims' bodies had been found about a 10-minute hike into the woods and had been found less than 100 feet apart from one another. Right. And these clothing items of Misty's, however. They were just right off the road. Yeah. In like little, in a ditch or something. Yeah, a little forested ditch kind of area. So it kind of it's kind of the same, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, you can't put everything in the same place, I guess, but I don't know. Well, you wouldn't go from walking victims 10 minutes in the woods to try to hide them to throw them in the side ditch. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Start throwing their clothes right on the side of the road. Yeah. Doyen's wondering, you know, hell, we've been out here looking and looking and looking, and finally they say, we're going to look on the other side of the road, and he walks right up and finds them. That kind of looks odd, too. It does kind of look odd. Especially in detectives' eyes. Yeah. But, you know, the pants were covered in dirt for some time, so it was saying, you know, it wasn't like he just went out there and buried them yesterday. Mm -hmm. They had been buried for a while. Right. So, you know, whoever dumped the pants there hadn't done it, you know, just a day or two before. Yeah. So it had been there for a long time, so that that kind of probably took care of a little bit of heat off of him. Now, Sergeant Herm Carver heard the news of the found clothing and immediately began to suspect Corey Bober and Diana Smith of foul play. Yeah, so everybody else is elated that we're doing something good here, and first thing he thinks is they're in on it. But Jim Doyen continued his investigation in the area, and he began setting up police dogs to sniff out the area, and he even arranged for a helicopter with thermal imaging to fly over the area, you know, looking for anything. Right. But one tip came in to Sergeant Carver. It was a tip from D.D. Miles. This was a friend of Misty's. And she informed Carver that two of the people that constantly hung out at Misty's house was none other than Reuben Schmidt, who always left before Diana would get home. Mm. Yeah. Now, despite this tip, Carver refused to believe that Bober and Diana had stumbled upon the clothing accidentally. And despite the finding of the clothing, they still operated under the assumption that Misty Copsey was alive and most likely just a runaway. What the heck, man? I'm not a fan of Sergeant Herm Carver. No. Now, in the following weeks, Corey Bober began to work more closely with the Pierce County detective Tim Coble, leading him on a wild goose chase for another clue. And Bober thought that Misty would be found under a bridge by a stop sign. And he began to point out seemingly innocuous things such as a pair of shoes hanging on an electric cable as signs of the Green River Killer and began to profess to Coble all of his beliefs about Randy Oxiger. Who had long been cleared by this guy. So yeah. This Cobalt guy's probably going, this guy's weird. I know. Well, you know, after this, Donnie, is when, you know, they were working together and, and Bo was hoping that him being there and working with the cops and their finding stuff is really going to help him get off light, you know, from that drug charge when he was facing four years. Yeah. But uh, I think he's uh, fixing to get a bad news because they didn't give a crap. They was going to give him his four years. Yeah, his, uh, his uh, sentences for his drug charges was getting close. Right. It was later in February, and, and he pleaded guilty to the charges. So then they did risk to uh, 14 months, but he still was going to do time. Yeah. yeah. He was hoping he would just get nothing, really. Now, while Bober was in jail, he was visited by Detective Coble, and he pleaded with him to give him any information he had on the case, especially the case file that he spent years making against this Randy Oxiger. Well, yeah, but he told him no. He ain't doing shit for him. Bober told, <laughs> yeah, he, Bober told him no. 
He basically said, go F yourself, is what he told him. Yeah. Because, I mean, you put me in here, I'm, I'm not, why should I help you when you put me in jail? And he threatened to burn every bridge he had spent years building because he wanted the personal credit. Yeah, for all his work. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't just going to hand it to them while you put me in prison. Yeah, I kind of get that in a I way. Too. I yeah. Mean, I mean, so. But in the end, I mean, you want the case solved. Okay. Well, see, not him. He wants the credit. He for wants all the glory. Work. He don't care nothing about Misty. He's yeah. worried about Green River Killer, in my, in my opinion. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, with Bober in jail, Detective Jim Doyen remained the only person actively pursuing any new leads. And Doyen was the first to interview Misty's friend, Trina Bavard. And it had been nearly six months since they had gone to the fair together. He tells them. Yep. First one to get interviewed. Yeah. And during this interview. Six months later. Yeah. During this interview, Doyen showed Trina a, pi- a picture of Misty's jeans, which had been found in the, you know, in the ditch. Right. And Trina began to cry. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'll tell you right there who his yeah. were. Yeah. And Trina revealed that the original plan for the girls had been to get a ride from Reuben Schmidt. But on the night that Misty disappeared, he had told him he didn't have enough money for gas. Right. And Misty telling Reuben how to get inside her house like we talked about. Right. He refused to pick up uh, Misty and Trina. So it sounded like me. They had already knew they wasn't going to be riding that bus home. Yeah. They was just going to call Reuben because he always give them a ride. And when they did, they got in trouble. And Trina revealed that she didn't trust Reuben. The rest of the story reflected on what Diane had told investigators that the two had split sometime after 830 and she had walked home to her house in Sumner shortly thereafter. Nothing suspicious had happened at the fair. No sketchy guys hitting on them or anything. Right. Whatever happened to Misty was much more of a mystery to her than anyone else. So there's a little first-hand information. Yeah. As far as was anybody creepy, you know, checking them out from the fair. Mm-hmm. So to me, it gives an even bigger target on Reuben to me. Now, America's Most Wanted had aired a segment on Misty Copsy. And more tips began to roll in, calling to the Puyallup detectives and giving Sergeant Herm Carver, who will still maintain control over the case. And Carver used those tips to try to lead Diane away from Corey Bober, who was currently gaining a poor reputation. <laughs> as a snitch, a, in, a snitch prison. in prison. Yeah, He can't keep his mouth shut for nothing again. While he's been gaining reputation being a snitch in prison, she's battling her own suspicions of him. But she also told Carver, you know, that she wanted him to start looking into Reuben. Because that's her, it was her, you know, that's who she thinks did it. Yeah. Now, this Sergeant Carver, he took a visit to Adam's Ribs. This was a restaurant where Reuben Schmidt occasionally worked at, Dale. I think he occasionally worked Yeah, really. He shows up when he wants to, I guess. (laughs) Now, the owner, who was Frank Rodriguez, revealed that Reuben had said some suspicious things about Misty following her disappearance. Things like um, he knew where she was buried, and and apparently Reuben had also told Frank of another co-worker, I guess, friend, that the cops investigating Missy's disappearance were off by about six and a half miles. Yeah, saying where she was. What the heck? Yeah, so he's just running his mouth. That's that's pretty suspicious, though, really. Yeah, a lot. Now, Sergeant Carver and his partner waited until Reuben would be turning to work, at which point they... He took off running. Yeah, he, he just left, man. Just like he did her in the grocery store. Yeah. And it was a few hours later, after refusing to speak to the officers, Reuben was finally brought in by Carver for an interview. Yeah. When, when questioned by Carver on the past statements Reuben made regarding Misty's burial site, Reuben referred to them as something he had said to, quote, unquote, kind of to get, I guess, his balls off his back. Yeah. Yeah. How in the hell would that get his balls off his back? Really? Uh, how how would it? That doesn't even make sense. Mm-mm. Yeah, we're going to post this picture. We got some pictures of Reuben. Let you guys 
judge for yourself about this guy. He was kind of cute. Uh, whatever. <laughs> now, during also during this interview, Ruben stated that he had previously told Diana that he didn't have the gas to pick up the two girls and that they had called multiple times and he kept telling them that he didn't have the gas. Right. But one interesting note can be found from Sergeant Carver's notes during this time period. Ruben would claim that he occasionally suffered from blackouts. Hmm. And this was periods of time where he would lose all recollections of as if he were asleep. And apparently he claimed to have a black blackout immediately following Misty's second phone call to him, which lasted until the next morning. Imagine that. I just had a blackout after she called the second time. The second time, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ruben had no idea where he was or what he did the night of September the 17th, 1992. Now, if you think back, what did he tell her mama? Him and his uncle went to a party, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, this Ruben guy, man, mm-hmm. he's, yeah. We ain't forgetting Ruben. We know what you said. Yeah. But this Sergeant Carver really didn't buy into the fact that Ruben was a suspect he was looking for. And when him and his colleagues issued a polygraph for Ruben, it was done so as a technicality. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Well, you know, he said, you know, that Ruben had no idea where he was or what he did that night of the 17th. And he would wake up the next morning with no idea where he'd been or with who and would drive out to his grandmother's 100-acre farm in Buckley. Yeah. So I wonder how far this is out. I don't know. He didn't know why he drove out there or why. I mean, he didn't know why he drove out there or why he did at all. Mm -hmm. And he was broke after all. He had no gas. And there was nobody home on the farm when he drove out there. Well, if he didn't have gas to get out there, how did he get there? Really? Ruben makes no sense at all, dude. No. Now, during this polygraph... The detectives took note that Ruben was trying to lure himself into a false sense of unconsciousness. Yeah, and, like trying to go to sleep during a polygraph. Yeah, whatever. Now, Ruben's polygraph came back inconclusive. Yeah. But could have been basically mainly on his unusual behavior. Right. And also, close to note that uh, that farm that he drove out to was less than eight miles from where her pants were found. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a day or two after his polygraph... Diana would get some kind of word that Ruben had passed his polygraph test. Well, I mean, she heard he he had passed the test quote with flying colors. Yeah, but so, so I don't but it, that at all. But it, it was reported it was inconclusive. Yeah, so how in the hell you think somebody's feeding her? Could have been wrong information. Yeah, but the police dropped Ruben Smith from their investigation because they had a brand new suspect to obsess over. But Ruben Smith would sell his 1974. Nova to a wrecking yard for reasons that are quite unknown. Yeah, to be demolished. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. See, they don't check nothing. It just no. drives me crazy, man. During all this time, the story had been that on September the 17th of 92, this is the night that Misty went missing. Right. Trina and Misty said goodbye near the fairgrounds, and while Misty was waiting for a bus, Trina was walking home to a nearby Sumner. Yeah, That's where she out, lived. yeah that was bullshit, right? Exactly. Trina had actually gotten a ride from her older boyfriend, who was 23 years old. His name was Michael Reiner. And this stone was turned over when one of Misty's friends was contacted by Sergeant Carver, who seemingly had no intention on following up on Reuben Smith. Right. Now, this Michael Reiner guy was eight years older than Trina. Yes. So, no wonder she's keeping her mouth shut. Exactly. That wasn't going to go over good. And a background check on Michael Reiner revealed a pretty sketchy past. Mm-hmm. He was 23 years old with a juvenile rape that hadn't been charged from seven years beforehand. Right. And he was also had personal ties to both 
Kim DeLong and Anna Tibetanoi. That's the two other girls they had found in the woods. Yes. Right. Yeah. And while the Puyallup police did publicly refer to Misty Copsey as a runaway, they were now beginning to dig a little bit deeper. Now, when the detective spoke to Trina Brevard again, she revealed that she hadn't revealed the information about her older boyfriend because she didn't want to get in trouble. Right. I I get that. Yeah. Yeah, because you definitely were going to be in trouble. And she claims that on the night Misty disappeared, she had tried to get in contact with Reiner, but Misty hesitated on getting a ride with him. And she didn't trust him for one reason or another. I don't know, man. Mm. And detectives wondered whether or not Michael Reiner had dropped Trina off, then gone back for Misty. Yeah, she had no alibi. I mean, or he had no alibi because basically that's what he did. He went and dropped Trina off and left. Yeah. So it's very possible he could have done that. Went back and got Misty and yeah, done whatever with her and killed her and dumped her. Right. Now, in April of 93, police would discover that Reiner was selling his car, which was a blue 1981 Ford Escort. Ooh, sweet. That wasn't in great condition. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know that he was selling the car to an undercover police officer who took the car in and began testing the forensics found inside the car. Look at him doing something smart for a change. Uh, Two samples of Misty, I guess, trying to find anything. Yeah, since they couldn't get to, by the time they got to the the junkyard looking for that green Nova, it had already been destroyed. Yeah. There was no chance of getting nothing from uh, Ruben's car, but so I guess they going to make sure they got something out of this one. While they were waiting for the test results from Michael Reiner's car to come back, Sergeant Carver and his associates scheduled an interview with their suspect to, I guess, to get a little feel for him. Mm-hmm. In July, they called him in. They began to question him about Misty, his relationship with Trina, his alibi for the night of Misty's disappearance, too. And after being slightly prompted, Reiner opened up about his juvenile rape incident, which he had been cleared of shortly after it happened because he was a juvenile. Right. And there was no way for the detectives to know the details, but it was true. He had been cleared of it. Right. Yeah, and they couldn't look at nothing up because everything was probably sealed or, or gone. Yeah. But detectives were hoping for a Hail Mary to come in from the test on Reiner's car, but for now, he was eliminated as a suspect. This sent them back to Reuben. Back to Reuben. Huh? Yeah, back to Reuben. Yeah, because this Reiner guy passed a while ago stuff, too. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I wonder why they didn't say, well, you know this girl's 14 and they're 23. We need to talk about that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what the hell I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, they need to be talking about if he's having anything to do with her, any kind of sexual relations, that's rape. I'd get him in on something. Yeah. I'd haul him in. Nearly an entire year had passed by the time Puyallup police began circling Reuben Smith as a serious suspect on this. And at this point in September of 1993, the runaway charade had been stripped away from the public eye while they were still publicly struck to the story they needed to do or find something for the case. And detectives began the next bout of investigating by talking to James Tinley. This was a 16-year-old who had been Reuben Schmidt's roommate at the time that Misty disappeared. Right. The one who said that him and his uncle went to go get her. Exactly. Yes. Now, apparently, Reuben's family had been kicked out of their apartment, so him and his brother moved in with Tinley and his family for a time being. And, uh, Tinley had been there the night Misty's disappearance, and unlike Rubens during his blackout, recalled exactly what happened. Right. Now, according to Tinsley, on September the 17th of 1992, Ruben had a 13-year-old girlfriend that was visiting his house. When Misty had called asking for a ride, the 13-year-old girlfriend had gotten upset with Ruben and started acting jealous. 13? Yeah. A short while later, she would just leave. 
And this is where Tinsley's story gets a little bit interesting. He claims that just five or ten minutes after Ruben's girlfriend left, Ruben himself left and didn't return until later that evening, sometime around midnight. Hmm. And Tinsley would also claim that it wouldn't go against Ruben Smith's nature to murder Misty. He would, he would claim that Ruben had a very short temper, was attracted to Misty, and he would believe it if Ruben had committed the murder wow. after knowing Ruben for some time. The detectives brought Ruben in again for another line of question and wanted to get him to take another polygraph, and he refused to take another polygraph. Yeah. But eventually caved and also answered some of their questions. So this would be apparently three? Yeah. Or we don't know. Yeah, and he would change his statement slightly, saying that he had driven out to his grandmother's farm in Buckley during his blackout. Not the next day. Yes, but otherwise stuck to his original statement. How the hell does he know? I don't know. Oh, uh, man, this, this uh, Ruben guy is very, very suspicious. Yeah. Now, despite all the suspicion surrounding him, uh, Ruben passed his polygraph, and his car was no longer available for testing. Yeah, it had been crushed. Yeah, he was released one final time by the Puyallup police and never investigated as a suspect. And to this day, he's never been questioned again. Yeah. Which mm, blows my mind. Yeah. And after Ruben was dropped off the suspect's list, uh, Sergeant Herm Carver began to focus on Diana herself as a suspect. Why in the hell would she even do it? I don't know. That That makes no sense. But Diana seemed to pass the polygraph test, and Carver began circling word of her supposed dishonesty to the other detectives, (laughs) such as the King County detective. Jim Doyle. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just trying, they're just pointing a finger at everybody. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think all this stuff they found on the side of the road out there on Highway 410. Yeah, he's convinced that they did that. They planted that. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Now, in the following years, nothing happened with this case, Dale. The Puyallup police again cluing to the runaway story. And in 1996, a story began circulating in the media that Misty would likely be making contact with her parents again. And the Puyallup police had joined forces with Misty's estranged father, Buck Copsey, and began hyping up an expected phone call from Misty as her 18th birthday approached. But no contact took place. No. But the runaway... The label's still on. Yeah, it stuck, man. That cop, dude. Yep. And in 1997, Corey Bober was charged with four counts of dealing marijuana, but decided to fight the charge, what he perceived as conspiracy, by the Puyallup police to shut him up. Yeah, because when he got out of jail the first time, they wanted him to come back in for questioning and take another polygraph, and he just refused to go because he figured they were just trying to railroad him. Yep. He just tried to stay away from him, so they are going to get him this way. But believe it or not, after more than two years, he actually won and managed to score a coup in the process of the forensic results from Misty's pants that were analyzed back in 1993. You know, he had included these pants in part of his defense and claimed that he had assisted the police and the citizens in, uh, as a citizen investigator, and it actually paid off. And uh, he discovered that, you know, when they discovered those pants out there in the woods, and uh, the results came back, they had found some hairs and some fibers along with some three red paint chips and uh, immediately been thinking about Randy's red Porsche, but to me, I was thinking about the guy's red Camaro. So, so he got a little bit of glory here. But okay. if you think about it, you know, if that same guy was patrolling that road, maybe he hit her. Yeah, with his car. You know. Now, May fourteenth of two thousand one, in in Lakewood, this was approximately ten miles away from Puyallup. There was a twenty four year old woman who was walking home from church in the rain at roughly ten o'clock at night. Right. And as she walking, a white pickup truck rolls by, and there's a mustached man inside ask if she needed a ride. 
And she tells him no, and despite this, the truck pulls over to the side of the road, and the man gets out of the truck. You know, guess who it is? It's Robert Leslie Hickey. The guy who had the red Camaro. Yep. Yeah. And He's now out of prison. Yeah, just been released from prison just five years into his sentence. Right. And has been a free man for just a few years now. And he's begins to approach the young woman, asking if he could have a cigarette. Yep, same, she, same old man. Yeah, and she says no and crosses to the other side of the street and pulls the cell phone from her pocket and begins dial 911. Smart girl. Yep. Now, Hickey rushes over to her, pushing her over the 15-foot embankment of, on the other side of the road. And he climbs down, begins ripping the woman's shirt, grabs her breast as she's screaming. He threatens to kill her, but he instantly is alarmed by the sight of Oh, yeah, he looks mean, over. She had the phone still in her hand and sees the 911. Yeah, and sees yeah. 911 on her phone. Or she'd try to call. Yeah. He grabs the cell phone and rushes off, but the woman is quickly able to rush home and call the police. Yep. And Hickey is found during his convicted for attempted second-degree rape. That's his second second yeah. serious offense since he's been on probation. Yeah. Yeah. And he's sent to prison for life with no possibility of parole. Right. In the years since his two offenses, many questioned whether it was Robert Hickey that was responsible for the disappearance of Misty Copsey. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, man. Or even the two earlier Puyallup victims. And he did commit one of his crimes just blocks away from where Misty had disappeared around the time. Right, right, and About right. the same time, too. Yeah. So and those definitely could have been the red paint chips off his car. It could have been. They would ever check. You know, because you see how he, what he done here. He ripped her clothes off, so, you know, she would have the clothes. Separate, yeah. separate from the victim, you know. So it's very possible. Yeah, very, very possible. Now, later in 2001, another cold case took a huge leap forward. Yeah. On November 30th, Gary Ridgway was arrested as the Green River Killer. But to Corey Bober, this was a slap in the face. He didn't believe that Gary Ridgway was the killer that he'd been looking for all those years. He, he, he believed, still thought it was Randy. Yeah. He would believe Randy was the culprit. Hmm. So he's thinking they're framing Ridgway? Yeah. That's what he's thinking. Mm. At least that's what, you know, Corey would continue to believe. And to this day, even though Ridgeway has confessed to dozens and dozens of murders, even losing track of his numerous victims. Right. Yeah. But Bobert doesn't believe any word of it. So this dude's special. I think it's Corey Bober has a lot of good ideas, but I think he's always rocker in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Obsessed. Yeah, pretty much. And it's also worth noting that on September the 17th of 1992, Ridgeway was recorded as working the entire day at his day job. Right. Which uh, kind of works in his favor. Yeah. yeah. Now, in year 2000, Diana Smith had Misty Copsey legally declared dead. Mm -hmm. She had a funeral for Misty, and Bober refused to let his hunt for Osiger go. He tried to pin the three red paint chips as being connected to Oscar's red Porsche and petitioned the police to test further samples. Yeah. And they came back inconclusive. Yeah. So they did test, but they never tested against that Camaro, did they? No. Now, the hair samples that were found in Misty Jeans were tested in 2013, but came back with no matches. Mm. They didn't match Misty or Diana and didn't match anybody else's FBI forensic database. Now, just a note, too, in the year 2000, Reuben Schmidt was arrested for theft, and he did a small stint in prison. And then later in 2006, his wife got a domestic violence protection order against him, alleging that he had threatened to kill her and burn down their house. Nice guy. Yeah, pretty nice guy. Yeah. But to this day, Misty's Copsey's whereabouts are still unknown to him. Right. 
But Diana Smith has adapted to life without Misty, but she hasn't given up on hope finding a resolution for her daughter. She has appeared on local talk shows such as Crime Stoppers in hopes that information will come forward and bring some resolution to Misty's story. And she isn't sure whether it's someone with a personal tie to Misty or the work of a wandering serial killer, but she knows that the truth is still out there waiting to be discovered. Without naming names, she has clung to the belief that Reuben Smith was her daughter's killer. Right. Or at least knows what happened to her. Yeah. To me, that seems to be the logical thing, unless it was the guy with the red camera. Yeah. One of the two. But this this Reuben guy to me, he just so damn flip-floppy, and I don't believe nothing himself. So. Yeah, he's just bad all the way around, man. Yeah. I mean, he got caught in so many lies. And, and they had it bad for her, too. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. And the blackouts. I don't get the blackouts. Yeah, it's all bullshit. Yeah. But that is the story of Misty Copsy, man. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah. If anybody has any information on her, they can contact local Crime Stoppers or the Puyallup PD there in Washington State. Or you can let us know and we'll contact them. Yeah. Yeah, either way. Be glad to. Yep. All right, Dale. We are going to get out of here, dude. All right, Don. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.